Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of How We Made It in E-Commerce. I am your host, Jasper Korea. Some of my clients call me the Pied Piper of E-Commerce. And today, our guest is Cheyenne Zadeh, the CEO of Dress Barn and the co-founder of the dating site, Zusk, which he sold for $250 million recently. And so we're going to spend the first part of the episode talking about Zusk and the second part talking about Dress Barn. So welcome, welcome, Cheyenne. Thanks for having me, Jasper. Yeah. So yes, let's start with Zusk. You started in 2007, and at the time, there were plenty of other dating sites, Match, eHarmony, specialty dating sites like Senior Dating and Plenty of Fish and Christian Mingle. Why did you and your co-founder decide to do a dating app at that time? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. I think if you if you remember 2007, 2008 was actually a time where social networking was becoming a thing. Now we take it for granted uh, in everything else in our lives. But this was the time that Facebook was opening up beyond just colleges. MySpace was at its peak. There were a half a dozen other social networks in different countries. And what we saw as a macro trend was that the consumers on the internet are going to spend a lot of time in these new kind of channels, if you will, new platforms. Uh, and none of the names that you just mentioned had any presence on, on these platforms. And, and when they allowed third-party applications to launch on Facebooks of the world and then later on on the other social networks, we saw it as a kind of seismic shift in consumer behavior and an opportunity to get in front of people uh, with a compelling value prop. And, uh, and that's why we decided to, to pursue that at that stage. Interesting. Yeah. And so, yeah, 2007, as you mentioned, seemed to be a golden age for Facebook app developers. You know, some of the biggest hits of the time by Zynga, you know, Facebook seemed to to be a lot less restrictive with with their APIs for people who wanted to build apps on top of Facebook. Uh, would, would you be able to build a site like Zusk today, given how much they've since locked down their APIs? No, absolutely not. I think it was a it was a window of opportunity. Not not only because Facebook was has changed the the platform rules and the APIs, but also because consumers at that time, they had a huge hunger for content to develop on these networks. Now we are on the other end of this, where maybe there is too much content on social networks. You know, in the early days, you might have received uh, I don't know, like that popular game that Zynga has at Farmville or whatever. You might have received an invite for that, and you know, you you would have ten percent, fifteen percent accept rate on something like that. Versus today, there's so much noise on these platforms. If you get like 0.1 percent click through on something of that nature, you're lucky. So definitely a window opportunity that was uh, that was open as a f- kind of combination of multiple factors in consumer behavior change and evolution of the internet. And kind of like at the time, Web 2.0 was a big topic. You know, all these things came together. And as an entrepreneur, sometimes you just need to kind of seize the moment and take advantage of the opportunities that are available in, in short windows of time to to get something off the ground that otherwise would be very hard to do. Indeed. Uh, yeah, in, in interesting 
observation. There's so much saturation, so much content out there. Even email opt-ins, email open rates, click-throughs have, have plummeted drastically since that time and much, much harder to, to get traction. Can, can you talk about the early days of, of Zeus? How did you acquire your initial set of users? Like how, how did you solve the classic chicken egg problem for marketplaces and dating sites specifically? You know, the men are not going to be interested unless there are enough women and vice versa. Can you talk about the early days and, you know, getting the first, say, 100K users or even 10K users? What, what was that like and how did you go about it? Yeah, no, no, great question. Actually, dating is not only you have to have enough women and men on the side, you have to have that in every geographical distribution. So it's not only a marketplace, it's a hyper-local marketplace. If I have eligible singles in Los Angeles, it really is not helping people in New York. So you have to have a critical mass in every metropolitan area to become a useful product. And this is why the, the opportunity that we had on, on social networks was so crucial to getting things off the ground. We had a number of kind of applications on the Facebook platform that had very high virality. They were not dating per se, but they had, you know, kind of fun and, uh, and gamey elements to them. And we used those kind of satellite applications as customer acquisition vehicles for, for the dating platform. And, um, and it really helped us get off the ground very quickly. I know when we launched Zeus, it was right before Christmas, I think December 18th or 19th, when we launched the app officially on the Facebook platform. And by Christmas Day, our servers were melting because we were getting so many users on the platform. And this was all organic growth from virality on Facebook, from the satellite applications that games that we had on the Facebook platform. And uh, we got 200 users, 200,000 users, I think overnight on the Christmas day, like the night before I went to sleep, we were at 30,000 users. And when I woke up Christmas day, it was over 200,000. So at the time, it was a lot of stress and hectic because, you know, like uh, elastic computing, like AWS wasn't as prevalent like today. So you literally had data centers and you were ordering servers and you know, Christmas Day, nobody's going to give you a new server. So we were just trying to figure out how to keep the app and site up. Uh, but it really gave us a boost in those early days to, to get things going very rapidly. Very, very impressive, man. 200,000 users in one day. I think that would be every, every founder's wet dream. <laughs> yeah, right? Those days don't come by very often. Yeah. Um, and, 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 and so... Did you did you struggle to get the women to join? Because you know you're talking about you had all these apps and games on on Facebook, and typically they're like ninety percent male. Those type of apps. What was it a struggle getting the women to join as well? No, it wasn't. It wasn't as lopsided as uh, as uh, you're describing. I mean, there there was definitely some markets that was very male heavy you know i remember like in india we really never got off the ground successful in india because most of uh, users on social networks in those days in that market were male so we will have like a 10 you know nine to one ratio of male to female which is almost impossible to make it work uh, but in in bigger markets like us like uk australia the split would be something like 60 40 and then we would need to work harder to make it 65 35 to make it a little bit more uh, or 
55, 45 to make it a little bit more balanced. So some places we we had to kind of adjust it uh, using, you know, more targeted customer acquisition. But in, in most places, we were able to get a good balance. And and the games I'm talking about were not, you know, these were not like uh, first shooter games or things that are very attractive to males. These were kind of lighthearted uh playful things that you could do on Facebook, whether it was kind of like, remember, surveys were very big back then. Like, what type of Sex in the City character are you? Those types of things were, were attracting significant number of female users. And then you would kind of uh, vet them and say, oh, if you're single, maybe kind of expose them to this type of content and get them interested in joining Zeus. So we were able to kind of balance that out pretty effectively. Interesting. And so when you say you had to work harder in some markets to to get the women, what specific tactics did you use? Was it paid acquisition? Yeah, you would would have to like supplement it with paid acquisition, you know, uh, or or other forms of content marketing and trying to uh, really appeal to to the other side of the spectrum and balance it out. But like the places that were very out of balance, it was very hard to achieve that. But if you were like close enough, but not quite there, you could pad it up uh, and make it better using those techniques. So at the time you started, were you and your founder single? Uh, and did you use the app to get dates for yourself? <laughs> and did you did, did you rig it to favor yourself? Oh, that's, a, that's a hilarious question. I mean, we get it very often. When uh, when we launched Zeus, I was already uh, in a in a long term relationship with my girlfriend then, who is my wife now. So <laughs> I I didn't use it, and we actually banned my co founder from using it because, and most employees at the company, because there was a history of litigation at places like Match dot com where engineers or founders had access to you know all the messages of the of the other side of, and if things would get complicated in a romantic relationship it could it could be grounds for a lot of legal issues uh, in in grand scheme of things so one of the policies that we enacted early on was anybody who has access to kind of private information about our members which obviously as founders we had access to that database was barred from uh, using the platform to to date women or men. I see. Um, so I mean, you could not take the tack that hey, we're 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 eat as they say in software industry, we're eating our own dog food. We're testing the product. I need to go on dates. Uh, I, like I've heard, the Airbnb's founders like had a multi-month period where they only lived in like Airbnb rentals to really you know experience the product. You you could not. We couldn't do that, and it was actually it was. It was detrimental because if you use your product yourself, you get an understanding that's much deeper than somebody was just observing others using it. So it was definitely harder for us to, uh, especially not so much for the founders, but for even like product managers and engineers. Uh, so, it, but it was, I think in retrospect, it was a, it was the right decision given the privacy implications of that. <clears throat> I see. Let, let, let's shift gears a little. So both you and your co-founder, Alex, your hardcore scientists, mathematicians, I believe Alex worked for NASA even. And there's there's a feeling among certain uh, serious venture capitalists that super talented founders like yourself um, are working on quote unquote frivolous, fluffy apps, you know, dating, games, uh, social networks, whereas you have the 
the ability to work on much more transformative innovation that would help society more. What's what's your take on that? I'll, I will take issue with with characterizing dating as frivolous. I mean, you know, like if 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 I am able, and this is something that you know, sometimes you lose track of it. But we were able to help hundreds of thousands of people, if not millions of people, find a companion that improved their quality of life substantially. And I think, however you uh, you know attribute value to what you do in the society, that to me is is very powerful. Knowing that. The work that you do every day is helping people find somebody that otherwise they wouldn't have been able to find. And if it turns into a fulfilling, happy relationship, that's that's a very that's a that's an endeavor worth pursuing. And I and I feel and I'm proud of the work that we have done to make that a possibility. I mean, we were getting literally invitations to weddings for people around the globe, uh, just as a kind of byproduct of the the happiness that, that our platform was bringing uh, to customers. Or you can even, you know, would you argue that what Jeff Bezos has done with Amazon is frivolous? It's not the most sophisticated thing. I mean, it's delivering, you know, toilet papers to your door, but it's <laughs> super valuable. So I think the characterization, if it's something is not complex from a scientific view, doesn't have significant amount of value for society, I would take issue with that. Yeah, fair enough. And and I, and I agree. Finding a life partner is, is a very important thing for many people. I, yeah, I think even, seen... even entertainment, right? Like if you right. think, look at Reed Hastings, like having Netflix has made quality of life for many people, especially in these times that we live in right now, significantly more tolerable than otherwise. So I think, I think games give people an, an, a, a window to maybe clear out their head or escape from a situation they might not want to be in. So all of these have their own uh, their own place in the society. And I don't think it's it's fair. And I don't think people who work on these products feel that way, that they are, uh, they're not contributing. Yeah, I agree. Absolutely. And and so, you know, you're, you're, you're right. That when you use a dating app, you, 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 you you're able to find a wider pool of potential partners that you would not meet in your day-to-day life. And so your chances of finding a high-quality match are significantly higher, right? So dating apps are a really uh, useful innovation. But on yeah, the other hand... Even, like, we, huh? we had people that would tell us, like, I remember this anecdote clearly. This was in Toronto. Two people that met through Zeusk uh, and eventually married, they used to live in the same apartment complex and they had never met each other in person until they discovered one another on the platform. So it's like, it's that crazy that you're living in the same building for years, but you never had the opportunity to connect. And then something like an app like Zeus enables you to do that. And that's the right person for you to be with. And you have a happy relationship. I think those, those stories are just always fun and nice to remember. Yeah. Fascinating. But then on the other hand, you know, some some people think that because of the endless options, you know, people are less committed. And uh, when things when you hit a bump on the road, say, in a relationship, because Zeus can bumble and Tinder are just there with endless options, like people tend to to be less committed and and date serially. What what, what, what do you think of that? Is that uh, uh, I, I, I think again, it, it's it's. To me, it's the same argument that, you know, like the world is getting worse in, in ways because there is more more options to choose from. Like think about 
I always remind myself of that. There, there was there's a photo of uh, a train. I think it's in uh, in uh, in Connecticut or somewhere where everybody who's commuting to New York is sitting with with newspapers open in front of them, and the caption said, "Technology has ruined our lives. People are buried in their newspapers because you know, like there is that it made information available." printing press made information available in a way that wasn't before. So life changed. So people who are missing the old days are complaining about that. Like my counter argument to that is if, if you didn't think you had choice and you stayed in an abusive relationship, is that better? You know, like the extreme example of it is that. So I think technology in and of itself is not a force for good. It just makes things easier and it can be used in a good way and a bad way. The same thing with social networks. We have had a lot of benefits from social networking, but all of us also know all the negative sides of this. So with, with from the beginning of time with humans, whenever there has been a technological advance, it was possible to use it for good and it was possible to use it for bad. And I think it ends up being a reflection of humanity more so than the tool itself being the problem. True, true indeed. So sh- shifting gears a little again, you raised... Uh... $60 million in venture capital for, uh, for Zusk. Uh, can, you, can you talk about that experience a little? Because our audience, some are, some are bootstrappers, some are looking to raise money from professional investors. So just, just talk about the whole experience. Were, were there ever conflicts with your investors? Are you looking back? Are you happy you did it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's uh, for, for certain businesses, I think venture capital is a very specific type of form of fundraising and it it's appropriate for for certain types of businesses it's not the answer for every business if i was starting a restaurant venture capital would be the worst type of funding even if i could get it to, to get it for for you know that type of business versus an internet business where you have to have substantial losses for a period of time to establish the product and then you can turn into profitability and and a return for those investors in a in a confined period of time, uh, then venture capital might be the right answer for that business. For Zeus, it was the right answer. We wouldn't have been able to scale to the level that we did in the time frame that we did had we not taken advantage of uh, the capital that that our partners ultimately provided to help us execute on our on our vision. So. That doesn't mean there weren't disagreements or arguments. I mean, if you have a number of smart people in a room and they're trying to solve a problem, they will have different approaches and you kind of objectively go through the process of, okay, which one is the right answer given the information that we have at this point? And not everybody is going to get you know, their, their solution chosen. But that's, I think that's not the point. The, the good thing of having... Uh, sophisticated venture capitalists involved in your company besides the financial benefit obviously getting the capital is that they see 10 20 30 other businesses in different stages and in different industries around the same time so they can give you kind of ideas that are not necessarily right in front of you as a founder and entrepreneur so that that definitely brings value they can be helpful in you know hiring and especially for executive level or or board members so there's a lot of value in having a having a venture partner involved in your in your business. But like I said at the beginning, the most important thing is, is the business you're in the right type of business for venture capital? And I think that's something that 
sometimes us as founders forget and we're like, oh, I need a million dollars to do this. Who might be able to give me a million dollars? I've heard VC, so I'm going to go that route. And sometimes you're lucky if your business is not the right type that you get rejected by every VC. But because if you get venture capital and your business is not venture friendly or venture ready, I think it it sets you up for, for tough times. Okay, I'll, I'll ask the last Zeus question, and then we'll move we'll move on to Dress Barn. Uh, what 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 are other key lessons you learned from starting, running, and eventually selling Zeus that that you'd like to share? I think I don't know if these are the most important ones, but the thing that jumps to my head right now, Amelia, is waiting for perfect is is your worst enemy as as an entrepreneur. Um, you know, you can always make anything better, whether that's your marketing campaign, that's your product, that's your team. Uh, but waiting to to plunge in until you have that is probably one of the biggest sins that I, I have committed. And I've seen many, many other entrepreneurs do the same thing, especially if you have a scientific or engineering background, because you're always looking for that elegant, perfect solution. And real world is not is not that. It's it's messier and it's okay to be a little bit messy uh, as you build out a company out of thin air. So that that to me was has been the biggest learning for me over the past uh, decade or so doing this type of work. Cool. Well, let's let's uh, talk about Dress Barn now. You you and your partners, I do Alex and uh, Ty Lopez, uh, acquired the business in December last year. You know, Dress Barn is a storied brand founded in 1962. I believe at their peak, they had $700 million in revenue and they ran into some trouble and you guys came and acquired them. So why, why, why did you acquire them and what's, what's your vision for, for the company going forward? Yeah, again, like with all these things, even when we've talked about why Zeus at that time, it comes down to some, some core thesis, right? So if you, if you look at the news, you look at the retail industry, you see many, many different retailers are in trouble. And... For me, then I step back and ask the question, is are they in trouble because people are not purchasing products anymore? Is their customer, has the customer abandoned them? Like what is causing this issue? That's not the case, right? We're still buying clothing. We're still buying uh, home goods. We're just buying it differently. We're buying it online. We are doing comparison shopping. We, we have different sets of expectations. And a lot of these storied retail brands really never got on to that train of e-commerce. They they have e-commerce, but it's usually a most of them at least do, but it's it's an afterthought. It's a second level citizen. Dress barn case in point, when we looked at they put it up for sale and we looked at the data, their e-com was was growing very nicely. Actually I think the last two years their their e-commerce business grew around 40% year over year. That's significant growth. But then you look at the overall PL, the, the brick and mortar was declining and was hemorrhaging cash. Their debt was uh, astounding. So it was really, they were over leveraged uh, and they had liabilities that, that was really hampering them. So for us, the working hypothesis was that if we can get rid of those liabilities that are slowing down this brand, revitalize the name that many consumers love and trust and, and believe in and bring it to 21st century and do an e-commerce play on it, we would be successful. And 
like you said, we we acquired the intellectual property of the brand last year. Relaunched the product, uh, the the retail on on Shopify as an e-commerce only January first, and uh, so far our our hypothesis has been very truly uh, validated, and uh, and we are seeing significant positive response to to the brand and to ability to to shop online and have a good assortment at at quality and and value that the customers expect, and and that's what we've been focused on doing for the past six months or so. So 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 so, so in its current state, it's a pure online play. That you you did not acquire any any of the physical retail presence. There's no plan to do a, a clicks and mortar type of strategy. It's pure online play. Right now we are 100 percent ecom. Okay. Uh, we are we are we are not against having physical presence, but it, even if we are gonna have a physical presence, it's not gonna be in the form factor that Dressborn had it before. And they they have they've had that model for 60 years. It never evolved, you know. Like massive square footage, a lot of inventory at every store, uh, a lot of associates. So, like you think about those overheads, and you look at dollar per square foot mm-hmm. at that model, and it just it doesn't work anymore. And we've seen this. It's not just Restborn. You see it at JCPenney. You're seeing it at Gap. You're seeing it at Macy's. Even Neiman Marcus's of the world are filing for bankruptcy because they're just that model. Is is not working any longer. So you can have a physical presence. You can, you know, you can have a Warby Parker or Cole Hunt or something like that with a smaller square footage, and the customer can sample the product. And if you don't have it in store, you can use lean back on your e-com engine and get it to the customer quickly. Nothing against having a physical presence, but it just needs to be in a context that works in today's environment. Yeah, that makes that makes sense. Now you talked about acquiring the intellectual property and the retail business was highly leveraged, so much debt doing poorly compared to uh, the online. And for a storied brand like Dress Barn, did you uh, did you come up against the private equity firms? They they seem to like these type of acquisitions. Did did you go head to head against them when you were? There were there were multiple. I mean, the, the prior owner is a publicly traded company, so a Sino Retail Group. Uh-huh. And an auction process, just being having that fiduciary responsibility to their shareholders, and we we placed the bid in. Our bid was actually not even the highest dollar amount bid, but we, as part of the package that we put together, we told them that we can take it off their hands in in two months. And none of the other bidders uh, were able to to do that. So they wanted them to continue operating the brand for six, nine months, twelve months until they transition. Uh, and I think here our expertise and kind of being internet first entrepreneurs and having the, the team and the know-how and the, the ability to execute on a very quick kind of jam-packed schedule helped quite a bit for us to to win that bid and and uh, be chosen by by the seller as as the winning party. Well, congrats, because I know some of these PE firms, they have massive amounts of capital. And so for you to to go head to head and win, and, and and I don't know how much capital you have, but <laughs> I mean that's that that's 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 a big win. And so so my next question is how how much did you pay, and did you have to assume any of the debts that the the company had? No, we didn't. We didn't have to assume any of the liabilities that the business had. So we were able to structure it as a clean uh, kind of sale of intellectual property. 
uh, with no no strings to it, which uh, which was very appealing to us because we didn't want to deal with you know divesting any of the assets or um, you know dealing with uh, kind of reduction in uh, in retail commitments that they had or anything of that nature. So we, we got a pretty clean clean deal structured and we were able to execute against that. I mean, we're not disclosing the exact amount of the transaction, but it allowed us to really get started in 2020 with a clean slate and um, rebuild the brand up from uh, from ground up. I, I, I see. So when you say just the intellectual property uh, and, and the brand, so so you, you did you also get the, you know, like the the products, the dresses or their tailors or, or or did you start with a completely clean slate? You have to hire your own designers and, and tailors and just use the brand. We, we did a bit of clean slate. So okay. uh, build up the inventory from, from zero again. Yeah, I see. My next question is around this, this idea that uh, entrepreneurs are much more likely to succeed at things for which they have a passion. So do you have any particular passion for dresses or apparel, or it's a purely opportunistic play? You you saw this storied brand with a lot of value, but it just didn't get online piece, and you you have expertise around that, and so you you jumped in. Or do you have a passion for the space? I mean, I've always been interested in in clothing and fashion, but I can't claim that that's my number one passion. Uh, and I think as a founder. When you when you build something from scratch, I, th- I think that uh, that passion is is more pronounced. But even then, like looking back at my my previous company, it, it wasn't like online dating. Like I grew up thinking that I'm gonna bring couples together, you know. Right. Uh, but I, I I've always been passionate about building teams and building products and bringing kind of connecting the dots and making something succeed so like the passion may not necessarily be in the in the application of uh, the group that you're building but it's in the process of building a company and uh, you know bringing things together and bringing groups of people together and doing more than anybody from outside believed you you will ever be able to accomplish so I, I wouldn't I, I wouldn't discourage people from working on an opportunity that's that's not their number one passion day in and day out. And with technology, I mean, you today it's touching so many aspects of our lives. Any business you touch, you can if you're passionate about leveraging technology to do things in a better way, you can find parts of that business that can take advantage of that and be competitive to others and have it as a competitive advantage, right? Things that we are now doing on Dress Barn from price optimization point of view, from discoverability point of view. I mean, these are not about necessarily apparel, can apply to anything that you're selling, but they're hard technical problems, hard computer science problems that if you do a better job as compared to the next guy, you you have a leg up and that can become your kind of marching drum beats that that you you move the team forward on yeah so so true i have a friend who's who's doing the exact same thing like going into very boring industries and using technology to make them a lot more efficient so so true next question is how is the the whole like covid lockdown affecting your your business are you seeing uh are you seeing massive uh, increases in volume you know shopify ceo tweeted that they're seeing a Black Friday volumes every single day. 
But then on the other hand, for apparel, there's a CEO of a, of an apparel company based in the UK who told Wall Street analysts while explaining their disappointing results that people don't buy nice clothes to wear and stay at home. So, <laughs> what's the, like, so what, 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 what are you seeing in your business, given that you're in apparel? Yeah, it's it's fascinating. I mean, it, it's interesting because we were already on a very, very fast growth pace. I mean, starting from you know practically zero. Uh, on a brand that has a lot of pool and really scaling that very quickly that even before COVID in, hit in the U.S., we were literally doubling every month. Uh, and that pace has has continued throughout uh, the crisis. Now, I, I can't really tell you if if COVID didn't happen, we would have grown even faster. That's, that's definitely a possibility. But I I don't think it has really slowed us down. It has caused challenges in the logistical side of things for us with our uh, merchandising and getting the right products into the warehouse at an, on an efficient clip. But our team has been able to navigate that pretty effectively. But if you look, if I put a graph of our revenue for the past six months and you didn't know that lockdowns in the U.S. happened in March and April, you probably wouldn't be able to make it out on that graph. This is... Kind of is, is um, obviously nobody could predict this happening, but when we launched Zeus back in 2007, 2008, really, at the end of 2007, you, if you remember, financial crisis back then. I mean, one of the fundraising meetings that we had literally, like Lehman Brothers, was collapsing, and all the people in the room were checking their portfolios instead of listening to our pitch. So we have kind of started businesses in the eye of the storm, if you will. And um, and the same thing happened at Zeus. Like if I look back on the graph of our growth, our revenue growth, our user growth, you couldn't make up the crisis uh, when, when you look back um, on that scale. What I think it's going to do in the long run for us is though, I truly believe this, this uh, pandemic has accelerated some macro trends that were happening already, right? We believe e-commerce is going to be a huge part of the economy. We believed it last year. We continue to believe it today. But I think it fast forwarded how long it will take for people, more people to buy online than it would have had otherwise. And that to me is, is, a, is a great tailwind. It's going to make us do more than we thought in the long run. In the short term, it creates a little bit of kind of complexity around supply chain and making sure that we we do all the right things that we need to do. But in the long run, it, I think it made brick and mortar demise accelerated, uh, among other macro trends. That, that is phenomenal growth, doubling every month. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so, you know, give, given that kind of growth, what would you say is the mix of your cut? Mostly people who who were dress barn uh, fans and customers for years who who now found you online and they want to continue buying from this brand they have a connection with? Or are you acquiring net new uh, customers who just want to buy clothes and somehow they stumbled on your site? I mean, the, the core certainly it is, and we started with, with existing fans of the brand. And these are devoted customers. I mean, uh, when we were going through the transaction and uh, they were announcing the closure of the stores, there were literally people on you know local news crying that, where am I going to buy my clothes? I've been just shopping here for 20 years. So there's that level of attachment to that brand. 
and we appreciate those customers and we want to make sure we continue to serve them the right way and and uh, keep them in the umbrella and in the family for for dress bar that being said we are uh, we are augmenting things beyond what the traditional dress barn was doing just to give you an example for years, people were asking Dressbarn to have stores or do e-commerce in Canada, and they just never did it. Uh, within a few months of taking over the brand, we have started shipping internationally, and Canada is the biggest uh, draw for us. So that's brand new customer in a sense. I mean, they already had affinity with the brand, whether when they were traveling to U.S. or if they lived in you know, border towns or what have you, or these are expats or things of that nature. But we are expanding the umbrella. We are experimenting with appealing to uh, younger audiences. Historically, dress barn has been predominantly 40 plus women. So, you know, they've never had products that appeal to the younger generations. And we are not turning it around and making it about 18 year olds overnight, but we are devoting a section of the merchandise and through technology and personalization, we are able to do this a lot easier than in a store. When you walk into a store, everybody sees the same experience. When you come to dressbarn.com, if you know who you are or where you're coming from, we can give you a more personalized experience. And if you're a younger age, we show you merchandise that's appealing to a younger demographic and vice versa. So it, it allows us to kind of grow the brand from that core and also bring in new new potential customers into the fold in the long run for us. That, 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 that's that's fascinating. And so speaking of appealing to a younger demographic than what 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 has traditionally been Dress Barn's audience, everyone is talking about how difficult it is to to capture the millennial market. And there are all these uh, millennial consultants that that help businesses <laughs> sell, sell more. So what, like what, what what have you obviously you've had some success so, so what are specific tactics you've used to to sell to millennials I mean I wouldn't say tactics necessarily I mean it comes down to you know uh, your 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 P's if you will right the product the placement the promotion and the pricing uh, this is just as as old school as it gets when when uh, when having a, having a company or having a retail presence specifically. And in, we are able to, like I said, the internet allows you to test the stuff, to be data-driven, to not just rely on some consultant or your gut feeling. And we have worked with our suppliers to, to help us kind of experiment with the stuff without taking on significant amount of inventory risk on either side of the partnership. Uh, we, can, we can put stuff in front of our customers or prospective customers see which ones they engage with and do more of the ones that work and less of the ones that don't work so it's it's an iterative process uh, but we have the know-how and the tool set to be able to do those types of experimentations at scale i mean we, we literally have like i think a few days ago i was looking at a 300 400 000 people come to our store right online think about that like how many malls in the world can say they had that many foot traffic a day none uh, not even by an order of magnitude. Even the bigger malls in the U.S. don't get close to that volume. So you have the opportunity to really experiment with with small subsegments of that audience and and put something in front of them, engage the response to it, and use that as as your guiding guiding principle and kind of iterate from there and and find the winners for yourself and for your customers. 
you know, earlier in this, you earlier you spoke about uh, customization. What 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 kind of customization are you doing? I I recently read about this uh, Japanese uh, apparel retailer. I forget their name, but they just snagged uh, Roger Federer from from Nike at Inclo or something. Mm-hmm. They, they send some device to to people at home, and then they they take their measurements, upload them to the web, and then automatically they get clothes that fit them exactly. Are you are you doing that type of thing? And can you talk a little bit more about the customization you're doing? No, I was more alluding to things along the, the line of kind of like your taste profile. What are the types of things that you might be interested in? I mean, kind of the simplest way I would think about when you go to Amazon and you pick a, I don't know, you pick a bag of dog food and it might show you, hey, you might be interested in a collar or a leash, right? So it just understands what you're trying to do a little bit better. And, and we come from that world of kind of data mining and artificial intelligence and machine learning to be able to make those types of judgments. So weaving that into apparel is something that, that we have seen some early success with and will continue to, to build on that foundation. I mean, sizing, getting that right, I mean, doing things like AR and you seeing the product on your body type of thing. Mm-hmm. Those are also kind of more experimental things that we are playing with, but I, I can't say we have found the right answer in those arenas yet. So we just make you know the return process for our customer as easy as possible. I know women like to try many different things. They keep the ones that work and they return some that don't. And we're able to build a business model that kind of allows for that and and also figure out to uh, ways to show them more of things that we, we believe in the long run they're going to keep. Got it. Uh, let's talk about Amazon. You know, obviously, by a, a lot of online retailers also sell on Amazon. They have the most e-commerce customers. So by selling on their platform, you can you can reach people you otherwise would not. But then there there have been complaints about them using your using third-party merchant data to build their own brands. You know, they see what's selling and they knock it off. Before long, they're they're diverting uh, traffic to their products. And and then there's also the issue of counterfeiting. If you decide to sell on Amazon, then it's it's easier for counterfeiters to hide. So what are your thoughts on selling on Amazon? Are you, are you there today? Uh, just talk about that a little more. Uh, we are not on Amazon today. I mean, we will definitely, uh, uh, we'll experiment with it. To me, the bigger uh, challenge is when when you sell on the Amazon, you're you're not the one in in direct contact with the customer. You're you're dealing with the customer through Amazon, and they ultimately own the customer relationship, and you're just fulfilling a need. I think in in the long run, the reason we bought the Dress Barn brand because we 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 felt that brand has significant value. Otherwise, we could have taken the same clothing and put it on Amazon and tried to sell it, right? So I think that relationship with the customer, in my mind, has significant amount of value. And uh, it might be possible that you you can leverage the platform on Amazon to to convince somebody to become your, your direct customer in the long run. And that's something that we'll experiment with. But uh, that to me, especially in, in apparel where things are constantly changing, you know, if you were making a widget that you would sell the same widget for years to come, I would be also worried about, oh, if somebody, if Amazon is going to learn that this is an evergreen selling very well, they will start to create some comparable product and divert traffic. But with clothing, it changes, you know, very quickly with, with seasons, with fashion, with taste. So 
that to me from an apparel point of view is not as big of an issue as like i said that direct relationship with with consumers when you go through an intermediary like uh, like amazon for for a retail brand like us i think that's uh, that's the the formula that we need to figure out yeah interesting yeah so speaking of Apparel changing very quickly. Zara has been very successful doing what's known as fast fashion. Are you trying to go in that direction or will you stay like a more mid-paced uh, apparel retailer in terms of like how quickly you turn around your designs? Yeah, I mean, the, the one interesting thing about uh, about Dressborn is that we work with many, many different partners in terms of manufacturing and design and development of the product. So it's not it's not entirely like our in-house team deciding what's the right bet in terms of fashion and fast fashion and what's going to be hot tomorrow or the day after. So we we are a retailer, right? We're not uh, we're not just a simple clothing line that we have a bunch of brilliant designers and they're going to make the right bet every single time. And I think uh, having access to that pool of partners that can execute on many different ideas, and then we can kind of go deep on things that are working and uh, maybe pull back on things that are not performing, gives us uh, some flexibility on that front. So our model is not like like Zara, where uh, where they are basically the the clothing line for almost entire catalog that they have, and it's. Uh, it's more of a pure kind of merchant model. Then the last question, you know, you've you've had success at uh, at e-commerce with Zuzka now Dress Barn. Uh, our audience is mostly small, mid-sized e-commerce uh, retailers and and and, and some want to be e-commerce entrepreneurs. If you were to offer them one word of advice, uh, what, what, what would you what would you say? I think the thing that has served me well has been. Uh, trying to find the kind of the macro trends and figure out how I can turn those into a competitive advantage in the long run for for my business. So in case of Zeus, first it was uh, social networking. After that was the explosion of mobile devices, smartphones, and the app stores and those. In terms of dress barn is this macro trend of kind of digital commerce for apparel finally being at the stage that that is taking over. And like I said earlier, COVID has only accelerated that even uh, more than we thought a year ago in terms of pace. So like it's your your life, your job is going to be a lot easier if you are on the right side of history, for lack of a better term, with, with the macro trends than when you have to fight it, right? Like I wouldn't want to be in coal mining business right now. It's just a tough, tough, tough battle. doesn't matter how good of an entrepreneur you are and how hard you work. So I think that to me is like one of the most important aspects of when you decide where to devote your time and energy and which direction you push in, uh, having that in mind in terms of big picture and, and where the world is moving and are you moving with it or are you fighting against it? I think it's, it's an important distinction. Well, thank you, Cheyenne. It's been a pleasure uh, having you on our show. Thank you again. No, thanks for having me. This was fun.